Father, we do have hearts of thanksgiving right now that you have allowed us to get back together here and it's different. And we know, God, there's going to be bumps in the road and, and, and you know, because we are um, not having all the same elements that we normally have. But God, we know it doesn't matter. We know that what you want is our hearts to worship you, to love you, to sing songs to you, to hear your word. But God, we know that that we so easily can get caught in, in other things and thinking that, that this is supposed to be about something else. Caught into thinking that this is supposed to be about having a, a polished show that goes off perfectly, and it doesn't. You don't want a show. In fact, you hate our shows. But what you love are the hearts of your people inclined towards you, worshiping you, pursuing you, being confronted with the gospel and receiving with great joy the fruit of the gospel. So help us to do that this morning, God. Renew our hearts today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in Colossians chapter 2, at the beginning of this section, Robbie took the first part of the section last week, and now this week we're going to deal with the um, kind of the second part of it. But in Colossians 2, verse 6, it says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't always feel very rooted. I don't feel very rooted in the faith sometimes. Sometimes my, my sanctification and my, my pursuit of Christ just feels very fleeting. I'll get in these places where I feel like I'm taking two steps forward and one step back. And that every time I feel like I've kind of rounded the corner on something, I feel like I'm making progress. Then all of a sudden I feel like I just get slammed. And it can make me really discouraged. And and the last thing I feel is rooted. The last thing I feel is established in the faith. And it can be so discouraging. There'll be times that I'll have, sometimes in the same day or the same moment, same hour, where I'll just feel like I'm on top of the world. I feel like I've really heard from God and I, I really feel firmed up and I feel strengthened. And then just the smallest little wave can knock me off course. And then that spirals me further because now not only am I dealing with this little thing that knocked me off course and my sinful response to something, but then my guilt and shame and frustration with myself starts piling on. And I start spiraling. That is anything but rooted. And I see what Paul is saying here and how often he says to people to be rooted in their faith, to be rooted in Christ, to have a firm foundation, to be unshakable. I just wonder where, where does that come from? How do I get that? And the, the way that we often go about getting it in our own strength is then, is, is then to just kind of force it on ourselves and say like, okay, it, it ends up kind of wading in the waters of self-righteousness. Because then we start saying like, no, 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 I am doing well. I am doing good. Like, I, I'm not going to beat myself up because look at, look at all these good things that I'm doing. Before I know it, I am finding my confidence and boasting in my own works, which then are flimsy. And it doesn't take very long for one of those to fall. And now I'm right back into that pit of despair. Is there any way to not be bouncing between those two extremes, to be crashing against those two rocks? Well, Paul gives us that. 
Last week, Robbie talked about how the answer for wisdom and all understanding, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, they're found in Christ. The answer is Jesus. And we find that that is this section for Paul. And really the letter to this point is the answer is Jesus. The answer to being rooted in our faith. He says it in Christ, Jesus. If you look in verse 19, you'll see how he does this. It says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What we see is Paul addressing whatever heresies are going on in the church there by focusing on the person and the work of Jesus. The answer is Jesus. Our rootedness is in Christ. And he does that. He starts it by by dealing with circumcision, which is kind of an interesting place to start. It says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So what's he referring to? Well, in in the Old Testament, their circumcision was the first act of obedience for a child. Now, obviously, they weren't obeying it. It was done to them. On the eighth day, they'd be a male son, a son would be circumcised. And it was, in short, it was a way, it was kind of the gateway through all of the obedience to the rest of the law. I, I am oversimplifying it, but in the interest of time, I'll oversimplify it this way. That the idea was, if you're marked for God, you're circumcised, You are marked as belonging to God. And so all of your good works and even your obedience to the law after that is reflecting back on God because you belong to him. But if you are uncircumcised, then even your good works are reflecting back on yourself. And so in a way, what they're saying is with circumcision, through circumcision, you're able to obey the rest of the law. But if you don't obey that first step, then you can't obey any of it. This is why circumcision was such a big deal in the New Testament, why they debated over that. If you ever noticed, they, there are certain things that they would debate about, but there's a lot of the law of the Old Testament that never comes up, but circumcision is a big deal. The question of could you follow Jesus? Could you really belong to God without being circumcised? But Paul is going to talk here about a circumcision that's not physical, that's not of human hands. He's talking more about a heart issue. And he's not the first, he's not making this up out of thin air. He's not looking at this and saying, well, uh, this doesn't really make sense in the flesh, so it's more of a metaphor for the heart. He's not making this up. This is what Moses said. In Deuteronomy 30, it says, When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, And you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. 
Then the Lord, your God, will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord, your God, has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord, will, your God, will gather you. And from there he will take you. And the Lord, your God, will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Sound familiar? Moses is saying, he's writing about this, that this is what the Lord is saying. He is going to gather you all together and he will circumcise your heart. Why? So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. The great commandment. On these two things, all the law and prophets hang, Jesus said. So obeying the law. You will be able to obey me with your circumcised heart. And that's what Paul is calling back to. He's saying, if you want to, be obey, if you want to obey God with your heart, then it needs to be circumcised. It needs to be marked. The flesh needs to be cut off. It needs to be given new, made new by God. And God is the one who does it. Circumcision is this first step in obeying. Without it, every good work is self-serving. But with it, everything points back to God. That's why it's not about being a good person. It's why even our good works are garbage before God. Because even our good works are done in rebellion if it is not done with a heart that is owned by God. Because without a circumcised heart, without a new heart that is given, that is marked by God, saying, I belong to God, then even my good works are just singing my own praises, which is the root of all of our rebellion against God. And so if you're trying to please God with just going to church or by stopping some of the bad things you're doing or by trying to do good things in the world, it will not work. It will not make you rooted. It will actually make you as shaky as you can imagine. He isn't looking for you to do those things. He's looking to be reconciled to you, to bring you back as a son or daughter, to redeem you and restore you. We need a new heart and we aren't capable of doing that on our own. Our hearts, because of sin, are a poisoned well and only bad fruit comes from that. It's seen, you've probably seen the signs around a lot about dealing with the whole issue of PFAS in our waters. In our water, like, so those of us that are in well water, that's a concern. The question is, is our, is our well poisoned, basically? Is the water poisoned? And no matter what you think about it, and whether you think it's a big deal, not a big deal, whatever, I think one thing we all can agree on is nobody wants to drink poisoned water. Right? I mean, we can't agree on that. First service had a hard time agreeing on it too. Like some people are like, well, I don't know. Maybe I do. Okay, let's just assume that you're a rational human being and you don't want to drink poison water. So if that's the case, we start there and say, okay, imagine someone comes out and they test my water. I'm now in the expanded testing zone. So someone can come out and test my water. Let's say they test my water and they come up to me and they say, okay, I got good news and bad news. The bad news is your water is poison. It's going to kill you. The good news, they're good news? The good news is your water pressure is awesome. 
I did a couple things over here, fixed it. So now you've got great water pressure and hot water on demand. It's amazing. But still poison, right? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, no, nobody says but after that. Poisoned water is poisoned water. And if our hearts are a poisoned well, then everything that comes forth is destructive. We need a new heart. And you might say, well, that seems pretty harsh. Like, I don't think everything, like, what about all the good things that, that people do? And what about, what, are, you, like, are you saying that like, none of that has any value? Well, when we're talking about this, when Paul's talking about rootedness in Christ, he's saying, yeah, it doesn't have any value. He's saying it is that bad. Verse 13, he says, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And you might say, well, I don't, I don't like that term dead. Like I know I'm kind of, I'm sick. I'm a little ill, like a little under the weather. Like I know I have some bad spots, but I also have some good spots. And so really, isn't this whole Christianity just taking my bad spots and just making them a little bit better? I just keep improving and add them to all the good things that I've already done? No. Paul says we are dead in our trespasses. Dead means dead. Dead in your sin that you have done and doomed in your flesh to ever change it. Like, think about that. This is what he's talking about. Dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. This is the state the Bible says we are in. Completely on the hook for all the things that we have done incurring this debt before a righteous God and with no hope of changing in our own flesh and in our own strength. That is harsh. But just because it's harsh doesn't mean it's not true. We are in a hopeless state. That's what it means to be dead without hope. But God made us alive together with him. Not just alive. He didn't just say, okay, I resuscitated you and made you alive and, and, and dealt with this stuff, but made us alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. He could have just forgiven us and left us to our own devices, but no, he says, I'm, I'm reviving you and bonding with you, reconciling with you. And in this, we have this incredible thing about Christianity that is not found anywhere else. It is this statement that you've heard me say before, which is God gives that which he requires. There is no other religion like this. No other claim to this. Where a holy God demands righteousness, justly demands righteousness, and holiness, and obedience to him, and worship. And in our futility, he gives us that which he requires. He gives us that which we need. It is unreal. That's what he means when he says, I'm going to gather you together. I will do this. 
He says, he's going to do it. He says, he's going to circumcise your heart so that you'll be able to love me. He says, you owe me. I, I, I created you in love, in this relationship. And your response as the created being is to love and worship me. That is the just and right thing to do. But you're not capable of doing that on your own. So I will give it to you. He gives what he requires. It's an incredible thing. We see this so many places. We love because he first loved us. We don't love him in our own strength. We love him because he first loved us. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, which we've said many times before. That is not If you hear a a guilt trip mother or father in your ear saying that, that is not what Jesus is doing. He's saying, if you love me, it's because I first loved you. And if that is true, you'll obey me. Obeying the commandments of Jesus is not a burden. He says it's easy. It's easy for those who are loved by me and then love me in return because I've loved them. See, God rightly requires righteousness, which means loving him and loving our neighbor. But our well is poisoned. And God says, I know. So I'm giving you a new well. Listen, the reason you keep, you and I keep struggling in our sin is because we are struggling in our own power trying to make up for the things that we've done wrong, trying to speed along the sanctification process, trying to make it seem not so bad, trying to justify ourselves, excuse ourselves, trying to live in our own strength and present ourselves as good as we possibly can before God. And then we go to God and say, hey God, I know I've been messing up, but look look at what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make it better. Like, do you see that? And he just looks at it and says, I've already given you what I require. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest for your soul. He's made you alive. How? Like, how is that even possible? If you're like me, you just, you struggle with that and say, yeah, but, but the things I've done and I keep doing it, like, shouldn't I have learned my lesson? And even in moments like this, you could leave and walk out from here and say, okay, all right, I feel more rooted in Christ. Like he's done this. He's given this to me. All right, I can now live in freedom. And how long before those works fall? How long before you snap at your spouse or your kid? How long before you harbor bitterness towards your coworker? How long? I mean, my guess is you won't even be able to get a block away before you see political signs of both sides and one of them just draws your ire up. It doesn't take long. But how has he done this then? How can I be assured? How can I be rooted in this that he's actually taken all that and he's actually dealt with it? Because if you're like me, you also know I can't just forget about these things that I've done. He says in verse 14, though, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So we know we've incurred a debt. We know we don't live the life that God has called us to. And the world's way of dealing with that is to just downplay our sin. Is to say it's not that big of a deal. It's not as bad as other people's sin. You're doing the best you can. But God has a much better way of dealing with it. 
He says, it is that big of a deal. It is that horrifying. And I have dealt with it. When we stand back and we think about it, we know better than to just think God would just overlook our sin. I could go through illustrations of demonstrating, but we know, we know that ultimately, even though we, in all of our cycles of self-justification and defending people who are like us and wanting to hold other people accountable, at the end of the day, we know that our sin is heinous. We look at the world and we don't want God to just forget about it and sweep it under the rug and just say, ah, it's no big deal. We look at things like genocide and human trafficking and abuse and starving children, not to mention the way the, the harbor, the hate and the bitterness that I harbor in my own heart that every once in a while it shows itself and I try to ignore it. We know that we can't. We have rebelled against the living God. We have poisoned the well that has created such a fractured world. It is treason in the highest order. It is a debt that we have incurred. And it has to be called to account. And God has taken that notice of debt and he has nailed it to the cross and stamped it paid in full. Every single sin in the world and in our hearts dealt with, paid for, justified, made right, completely. Just think about that for a second. I tried to think of an illustration to articulate that a little more clearly. And then it dawned on me, if you need an illustration for that, then I would just say you're not ready to hear it. Because if you can imagine everything that you have done, are doing, will do, God looks at it and takes it and he does not ignore it. He does not sweep it under the rug. He does not tell you to ignore it. But he also does not make us pay for it. He pays for it. He gives what he requires. He takes it, he nails it to the cross, and he says it's paid. Which, by the way, is how we're able to forgive one another. In my years of ministry, I have heard some of the most horrifying stories. Some of you have lived those horrifying stories. The worst things you can possibly imagine happening to a human being and almost always, either a confession of what they've done or what has been done to them, and almost always in those conversations, some statement like this is made. I know I'm supposed to forgive, but how can I forgive this? And the world's way of dealing with that is to say things like, well, in time it will become easier. Time heals all wounds. Nobody's perfect. Just, you got to move on. But we know that time does not make those things any less painful or any less heinous or any less evil. We know that. And so we're begging, just in our hearts, crying out for a better answer, and God gives it. 
he says, I will make it right. And so when we forgive others, when we say, I can forgive someone, it doesn't mean saying it's no big deal. It doesn't mean saying it wasn't that bad. It doesn't mean saying it's, it's okay. It means saying, I'm going to take this and I'm going to give it to God who I trust to make all things right. I'm going to hand this over to God and say, you are just, and I trust you to make all of this right the way that you have made these things right in my own heart. That's rootedness. That's rootedness that in Christ that doesn't get knocked around because someone has sinned against us, doesn't get shaken when trials come at us. And that is how he says this in 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Look at that. God puts them, the rulers and authorities, to open shame. How? Because they did the most evil thing imaginable. You can't get more evil and heinous than murdering the perfect son of God. And they thought they had executed their plan to perfection only to realize that what they had meant for evil, God had meant for good. He disarmed them, rendering their greatest weapon, death, useless. And in fact, turning it into victory. This is what God does. He fights evil with good. He turns things upside down. He uses the least impressive to impress. You know that in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So he turns things upside down and he confronts it. While the world says, if you want to feel better about your sin, run away from it, ignore it, focus on all the positive things. God says, no, run into it. Watch it get nailed to the cross and be dealt with for good. That's how you fight against that in your hearts. Look at the life of Paul, specifically in his letter to the Philippians, where he's writing this from prison, trying to encourage this church as they're worried about him and wondering, what does this mean for the gospel that that Paul is in prison? What's going to happen? And Paul says this in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Look what he's doing. He has all these people who love him and are worried about him. Paul, are, you, are they going to execute you? Are they gonna, what are they going to do with you? We're all waiting to hear and worried about you. And Paul says, why are you worried? What are they going to do? Kill me? To die is gain. I get to go be with Christ, which by the way is way better than hanging out with you guys. Well, but what if they just let you live and rot in prison there? Great. To live as Christ, I get to join with him and then get to encourage you in his, in his work. And then he goes on in, in, in Philippians 3, he says in verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So they can't even torture him. Because they torture him, he says, great, I get to share in his sufferings and identify with Christ. What Paul is trying to encourage the church in Philippi with is the same thing he's trying to encourage the Colossians with, which is, I'm rooted in Christ and you can be too. I don't worry about what's going to happen. If they kill me, I get to be with Jesus. If they let me live, I get to be with Jesus. If they torture me, I get to be with Jesus. Are you getting a theme here? 
Which is why leading up, this is why we talk about context of verses because we just rob so much of the richness of it when we don't have it. But he's saying this, preaching this through Philippians and he's saying all these things about it, which is how he gets to verse 13 of chapter four. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We take that apart and we say, I can do all things. Look at me. That's not what Paul's saying. I gotta calm down. That's not what he's saying though, right? He's saying I'm rooted in Christ. They can kill me, I'm with Christ. They can let me live, I'm with Christ. They can torture me, I'm with Christ. I can do all things through Christ. That's rootedness in Christ. Not in his improvement. Not in like, ah, I had a really good day today. Oh, look how many times I shared the gospel today. Look at how nice I was to that terrible person. It's so fleeting. But in Christ... Paul can handle all things. And everything they throw at him gets turned into victory. Paul, you're weak. Yeah, I boast in my weaknesses. So the power of Christ would be on display. Paul, you're foolish. You're speaking foolishness. Yeah, cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who believe, it's the power of God to save. Paul, you're not eloquent. You don't speak as well as some of these other people. Right. I chose to know nothing among you but Christ crucified. Christ, Christ, Christ. That's our response. That's our rootedness. And so when the enemy tries to distract you or destroy you or discourage you, your answer is Christ. Your answer isn't in your discipline or in your track record. Your answer is in Christ. The enemy tries to destroy you with trials, to discourage you there. We triumph over those in Christ. How? By counting it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The enemy tries to use fear, fear of death, fear of things happening in the world. And say, why would I, why would I fear man who can only kill the body? I'll fear the one who has authority over my soul and can kill and destroy that. That's who I'm going to have fear over. And by the way, he's redeemed my soul. The enemy uses shame and says, you think you're good? Like, look at how you haven't, you still haven't conquered this. You're still falling. You call yourself a Christian. You, you think that, you, that you're worthy of this? And we say, nope, I'm not. But God demonstrated his love for me in that while I was in this state, hopeless and helpless, dead in my sins, Christ died for me. And though I am a work under construction, I know, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Do you see how the gospel takes all the weapons that are used against you and he turns them around for good and turns them into victory? And the more that happens, and even the more our weaknesses are on display and our sin is there, we nail it to the cross. And we think about all the sins of the world being nailed to the cross. That cross has to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And pretty soon, as we're sitting there nailing all this stuff to the cross, we're like, how big is this cross that it can handle all of this? It's really big. And it gets so big that it becomes the only thing you can see because it's blocking your view from everything else. 
This is what Paul is saying in Romans when he says that when sin increases, grace abounds. So more. That's what he does. And when you get to that place where you just look at the cross, you're like, okay, it's all Christ. And from a circumcised heart, you respond in faithful obedience and things happen and you find yourself praising God for the grace to even obey. You say, ah, look at this. Praise God. In Christ that happened. I can do nothing apart from Christ, but in Christ that happened. In Christ, I'm being sanctified from one degree of glory to another. In Christ, I'm sustained and all of my debts are paid. Just imagine what it would be like if we embraced that and found our rootedness in that. Not in the success of the mission that we believe God has given us. Not in ourselves holding all things together, but knowing that all things are held together in Christ. That's what allows us then to do what, circle back to what Robbie talked about last week and to embrace the wisdom and understanding of Christ. The mind of Christ. To not think like the world, to not think in our own flesh with uncircumcised hearts, but to think with renewed minds and to live with renewed hearts. That's when we can do things like truly love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Or to embrace the idea that the last will be first and the first will be last. Or that whoever would want to be great among you must be your servant. Or that for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for the sake of Jesus will find it. That comes from a circumcised heart which he gives to you. Receive it. Walk in that rooted in Christ. As you came in, hopefully you were able to grab a communion cup. And we are reminded in this, that this is how we are rooted. This is how he secures our salvation. This is how he pays our debt in full. This is how he secures our inheritance. This is how he assures it. That in the, in the cross, we see our debts paid. We see ourselves reconciled back to God. We see the power of God to give us new hearts and to walk in newness of life. And so we come to this, not with our own track record or our own rap sheet, we just come to this with us. And we are reminded that Jesus reminded his disciples of this and sat with them and said, this is my body broken for you. Take this and eat in remembrance of me. This is not merely symbolic. We are communing with Christ and remembering and reveling in and dwelling with as we call to mind what he did on the cross and how he poured out his blood to seal the covenant, marking us, buying us back, redeeming us so that we can say with all the firmness, 
that we belong to him. So we take and we drink in remembrance. Father, please forgive us our sins. We know that you do. We know that you take our sin and you nail it to the cross. You even take our sins of not asking for forgiveness or of trying to earn our forgiveness or trying to make up for what we've done. You take that and you nail it to the cross. You take our unbelief of when we struggle to believe that this really could be true, that you really could look at me and see Jesus. That you really could see me and see me as righteous. And that it's not because you ignore or don't see or are unaware or been fooled by me. It's because you have made me that way in Christ. At Jesus, you took that for all of us. And because of that, all of us who claim you, who profess our faith in you, who place our trust in you, who dwell in you and you dwell in us, we have been given new hearts. We are no longer dead in our trespasses, but we have been made alive by you in Christ. And that you have empowered us to be able to walk in a way that is rooted in you. God, remind us of that constantly. Don't let us forget that as we stumble along this path towards glory. We know that you are constantly picking us up and reminding us that you have already given that which you have required of us. We praise your name. In the name of Jesus, amen.